welcome to Not Quite Dead, a gal pal horror movie discussion podcast. We do deep dives on our favorite scary movies. And sometimes we just keep it shallow. I'm your host, Megan. I'm Kate. Get ready, because here come the spoilers. Hi, we're here talking Saw 6. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so in case just, you couldn't tell. In case you couldn't tell, we are six deep we're on the back half of the Saw franchise. There's only so many more movies to go. A uh, high-level synopsis for this one. Uh, we are, again, with Detective Hoffman. He's been in many of these movies. We're still following him. As of the end of Saw 5, um, and really before that, um, Hoffman has killed FBI agent Strom, who is also working the Jigsaw case alongside the police force. And now Hoffman has to try and convince the rest of the FBI agency on the case and the, the detectives that Strom was actually Jigsaw's henchman all along, not himself, not Hoffman. So I watched this last night and then this morning I woke up at like four for some reason and was like, okay, I'm going to watch this again just to make sure I got everything. Um, Cause there was some stuff that came up that I wanted to double check and do some research on. So I did that this morning. You're so much better than I am. I started watching it on Saturday night, watched 25 minutes of it, and then I decided I wanted to eat dinner, and I refused to watch a Saw movie while I eat dinner. Sure. Um, so I watched it broken up over two nights, just the once, and I don't have it in me to watch it again. <laughs> it's so funny because re-watching these, I was – least looking forward to three four and six and seven mm -hmm. and so far three and four have and actually six in this case has not been as bad as I expected it to be I I think three and four were actually okay I was like oh man anything after saw two is just gonna be not great except for saw five I think that we knew that saw five had some fun stuff based on some previous um watch marathons that we'd done and I think that the thing that was difficult for me in this one is that I don't think I really like the traps or the victims going through the traps. And it's like, that's what we're here for. We're here for the traps. So like, if I'm not, you know, really invested in that side of the story, then the only thing I have left is Hoffman and Jill and they're the worst. <laughs> they are. But I realize that this, this is the one, this is the movie that I don't hate the most because I, I, I always confuse six and seven, um, but Jill is not on screen too much in this one. And to be honest, Hoffman doesn't do a whole lot either. There's definitely a lot of flashbacks. They do. Yeah, they do focus, I think, more on the traps in this one. But you're right. Not only are the traps, they kind of have something left to be desired, but there's also just less of them. So far, this is the lowest trap count. This is seven traps that I got for this episode. Oh, yeah. Let's see. I also got seven traps. Yeah. And yeah. that's the lowest number. I think it's the worst ratio of traps to flashbacks because I have 14 flashbacks. Ugh. Wow. 200%. Yeah. It's rough. And I just think that um, – I think that they were going for a really interesting, timely – this movie came out in 2009, so this movie has a big anti-corporate bent to it. You can, I feel like that was the thesis of the movie, 
And they just kind of picked insurance so that it would be somehow related to Jigsaw. Yeah, it really vilifies this one man who becomes the representation of all of the insurance companies out there. So we've seen John tackle the medical industry. Um, So I am excited to see him tackle the insurance industry, which, as we all know, is very evil. It's very evil through and through. I I think I struggle with it because, like, everyone has been, you know, messed up by insurance at some point or another. So, like, it's definitely a thing that I think that we can sympathize with. I think in 2009, people who are losing their jobs and not able to be covered under employer insurance anymore. I think that the insurance is just, like, a really hot topic at the time. And I think that the thing that I don't like is that they have this department of insurance agents and they really dress them like they're Wall Street executives. Like, yes, they're they're the caricature of like, I don't know, Manhattan assholes. Like they're in like striped suits and like fat ties and like, and they're insurance agents. So we did touch on a little bit of the context at the time while this movie came out, um, 2009, this was right after the financial crisis. And this is sort of when things are all blowing up around the country for, for people. Um, this is actually the year that I got married to Zach. It's also the year of swine flu. Hashtag remember when also this year, Michael Jackson died. So much happened in 2009. Jeez. It was a rough year. It was rough. We also had two American heroes uh, surface this year, both played by Tom Hanks in future films. Can I guess? Okay, is one of them Sully? Yes, one's about Sully. One's not Sully. And then American Hero. Okay, so Tom Hanks did... Mr. Rogers die? No, that happened a while ago. Good guess, um, though. Good guess. Okay, what was it? Okay, um, April 8th for Pirates, and the Pirates take Captain Richard Phillips as a hostage. I haven't seen the movie, but I'm very familiar with the memes. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Same here. (laughs) So it was the year of Tom Hanks of the future. Do you think that I could pitch Tom Hanks in a role when I when I or if I ever finish my Saw City spec script? Oh, definitely. I would like that. I think Tom Hanks is going to be the guy that like saves the day because he usually is. And I want that. Like, I think that there's some degree of like audience fulfillment that we we want and deserve in a movie like a Saw movie. <laughs> Especially <laughs> like, when Tom Hanks is involved. Exactly. I think that we see in the second half of the Saw franchise, all the movies tend to have around a $10 million budget. This one crept up to an $11 million budget. This movie got an X rating in Spain, uh, which is normally reserved only for porno movies. Um, But because of the amount of violence and gore in this one, they gave it an X. The violence and gore in this movie rivaled porn, guys. I mean, I don't know how this one got an X and the previous ones 
didn't. There's there was one scene in particular I can think of that I was like, oh, that and you probably know what I'm talking about. It's at the end. Mm-hmm. That I think is is what pushed it over the edge, but. All, everything leading up to it, I was like, yeah, I think we've seen a degree of gore in like sophomore. Yeah. And this is also the lowest grossing of the franchise. This movie only made $68 million. I mean, that doesn't that doesn't sound like a terribly low number compared to 11 million, but the other movies have been making over 100 million at this point, 100 and a half million. So that's a big drop. Well, this movie was also directed by Kevin Grutert. This is actually his first time directing anything. And he had been involved from the beginning in this franchise, just in a different role. Um, So that was really cool that they let him direct. And he also directed the next film, too. We see that with David Hackle in the earlier movies, too, where he had been working on the film in a different capacity and then went and directed it um, for, I think, Sophore. So it's kind of cool to see that, you know, there are people who are involved with these movies who maybe wanted to to try directing and then they get the opportunity to later. That's all the backstory facts that I had. Did you have any more or should we get going? Yeah, let's let's jump in. Trap one, I called Cockroach Mania. Ooh. Oh, okay. (laughs) Um, And... Um, <laughs> this trap actually has nothing to do with cockroaches. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, are they just roaches because they're predatory loan uh, people? Oh, I love your interpretation, but it was okay. because the first opening shot, um, and then it, cause it kind of cuts in between the credits. It does show cockroaches crawling on them. And oh, okay. So good. <laughs> I thought it was going to be about cockroaches. And then it turns out that it has nothing to do with the cockroaches. Oh man. Have they, they haven't done any traps based on horrible bugs. They haven't. They really keep these <sighs> just focused on like the people and themselves. I think a better name for this trap uh, would be a uh, pound of flesh. That's literally what I called it. That's exactly, yeah. That's I think that if you probably look at the script, that's probably what they call it in the script. Probably. <laughs> so in this trap, we have um, again two people. So I think that this is maybe the second or third Saw movie where the cold open has two people who are like in a race against time, again specifically against each other, where they're stuck in traps. We have a woman cage in one side of the room and a man on the other side of the room. And both of them have a very classic jigsaw apparatus over their heads with two screws pointing at their temples. So we've seen something very similar to this, I think way back in Saw 2 with the guy who is just hanging out. Actually, no, this was Saw 1. The guy who is just hanging out in Jigsaw's warehouse yeah, it's a little bit related to that and also the scalp machine. Those those three are kind of related to each other, it seems like. Here is where they're really setting up the theme for the movie. These two are both predatory lenders. They've lent money to people who, you know, could not ever possibly dream of being able to afford paying it back. So this is kind of, you know, pulling in the housing crisis issues of 2008 into this plot. And so Jigsaw wants to punish them by having them contribute, you know, a pound of flesh. And whoever can cut off the most amount of flesh from their body in some way in under a minute, of course, 
uh, will survive the trap without getting drilled into their skull. Yay. It's a it's a classic. <laughs> yeah. And there's, you know, the one dude is very fat and you think, oh, he's got a lot to lose so he can win this pretty easily. So he starts cutting these really perfect filet of fat steaks. <laughs> and I was like, man, that looks really good the way he did. That's very clean. But man, it was uncomfortable to watch. I wanted um, to ask you, which one would you go for? She so the woman, oh, man, she I know. the woman is so slender. She looks at her body and she Very fit. she twigs like right away that she is not going to be able to just cut fat off of her body. She's going to have to lose a limb, and lose so, something vital, or lose something crucial that weighs a lot more than than fat steaks. Right. So she. She does this like great like negotiation with herself where she starts the whole minute. <laughs> the whole minute she's like thinking about it. Yeah, she starts at like the base of her hand and then as she's looking at this guy chopping off more and more off of his belly, Ugh. she like keeps moving the knife further up before committing, which I did appreciate. So she'll like kind of cut and then she'll go like, no, no, it's not going to be enough. And she'll move further up the arm. I think she starts with her fingers and then she keeps moving. And what would I do? I, I mean, I would not, you know, his approach is, it makes sense. It's, it's not anything he needs. And also it's like my liposuction fantasy. I mean, how many of us sit here folding our belly fat in our hands and wishing <laughs> we could just cut it off, you know? So, but his is so prolonged. I don't think I would go that route. It, he just keeps peeling and and slicing and throwing it away. And I'm just like, oh my God. I, I mean, you did it once. How did you do it again? I know. I don't, I don't think I could do it either. I think I would have to do her method where she just picks a spot on her body that she's like, praying will be heavy enough and just commits to that one part and I think that that's what I would want to do in the situation is just go she goes like at her elbow she's screaming and hacking away and she does it she does Ugh. I, I also noticed a line here that I didn't quite understand um our our dude says this is your fault to her I don't really get and it either I'm I'm like I don't think they're gonna I don't think they follow up on that. I think he's just mad. I, I kind of just chalked it up to him, him being mad, but I don't understand how anything would be either of their faults in this situation. <laughs> they, I just seem kind of like a throwaway line of dialogue. Yeah, probably. We do hear moving away from trap one into the like plot of the movie. They bring back some of those quick cuts Actually, and this is in in the trap too. Like when she's struggling to cut through her arm, they have some of these quick cuts in the music also, which they had kind of skipped over in Saw 5. Maybe this is a little touch from Grutert, uh, the director. I'm sure we're butchering his name. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I already did. <laughs> but as we get into the movie, of course, the first thing that we see is a flashback to the end of Saw yes. 5. <laughs> we see Strom getting murdered in that Star Wars trash compactor and Hoffman's just horribly loving it face. He's he's living for this every moment of this he lives for. And <laughs> this is so gross, but they actually show Hoffman uh, releasing <laughs> the trash compactor and um, Strom's body like drops down from it. 
and it's like a trash bag full of meat. Like that's it's like so sad looking. Like oh, this was become. once a man, and now it's just a mangled slop of a corpse. It's unrecognizable. Like you would not yeah. know that it was strong. It's gross. And Hoffman looks up, and what does what does he see? He sees a perfect hand. A perfect hand with perfect fingerprints. We don't come back to it for a little bit, but Hoffman has has some devious plans for this hand. Yeah, and I and I I spent a lot of time looking this part of the story up, so we will definitely unpack it. So now we switch over to more of the meat of the story, which is our insurance agent who is working at Umbrella Health Company. Umbrella, very good generic evil corporation name yeah yeah it's so anti-corporate it's in this like big glossy building in saw city our our nameless city this guy's name is easton which they don't make very clear at any point in this movie that that's what his name is they don't i just call him insurance guy the whole time i actually literally call him insurance guy in all of my notes and then when i was (laughs) refreshing myself on wikipedia for some of these details i saw that his name was easton and wrote it down yeah (laughs) So he's meeting with this guy, and it's one of those classic, you know, guy who comes in, he has heart disease, and the insurance guy is like, well, this is a pre-existing condition, so we could not possibly cover this. And the guy's like, what? I didn't have anything wrong with my heart. We've all been here. Yeah, they tell him like, oh, well, you actually had oral surgery for – Um, a benign cyst and that can be an indicator of gum disease and gum disease can be an indicator of heart disease so pre-existing condition get the fuck out of here yeah never pre-existing condition you were born you're susceptible to something basically is what this movie is saying they really want you to hate this insurance guy this is actually the most sorry looking man for any of his previous misdeeds he just seems so apologetic this whole movie and i think they do that on purpose he just always has a sad sorry look in his eyes i wonder if that was directed or if that was actor driven because yeah his dialogue is not stellar the, the dialogue in this movie no. is not great but he does a lot of work emoting and looking devastated throughout this movie yeah. as he's going through the traps that he's of course going to go through (laughs) like seeing this guy you know that he's just gonna get jigsawed and so i think that that he put in a lot of work to try and make him a sympathetic character when he's actually in the traps yeah i think so too and i I think it was good because it kind of i never really thought about it before you know he is just a cog in this wheel they've they've painted him to be the guy at the head of everything, but really everybody who works at an insurance company is sort of a cog in the wheel, unless you're at the top. So right. I, I I enjoyed that little little bit of acting mm-hmm. from our insurance guy. We're kind of back with Hoffman. So this whole movie, we're bouncing between Hoffman and the investigation into Jigsaw's crimes and Hoffman trying to throw the other agents off the scent and then what this insurance guy is going to be run through and then we kind of have this c plot with jill and the journalist so there's a journalist who gets involved Mm -hmm. here at one point and Um, she was in the last episode i don't know if you looked up the journalist but they did bring her back from a previous episode 
Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't remember her. I recognized her from the press conference that Hoffman gave in Saw 5. She was just sitting in the audience. Okay. That's a nice piece of continuity then. Yeah. So we have um, we have Hoffman going to the crime scene from uh, the first trap of the movie, and they use a black light. And so we just see, like, you know, they love the black lights in here. They, they use it to look for fingerprints or for glow-in-the-dark paint because they know that Jigsaw loves himself some glow-in-the-dark paint. And this is where the – Erickson. Erickson. Yeah, thanks. Erickson yeah. is okay. really convinced that Strom is the henchman at this point. Yeah. And is this where we see Perez again? Yes, it is. So we get a Oh, hey, Perez. Perez. Um, So I wanted to start a new section called We'll Fix It in the Sequel. (laughs) And so the first entry into We'll Fix It in the Sequel is that Perez is not dead. Nope. And so I had uh, just re-listened to our um, episode – yeah, episode five, um, where we talk about Saw 5. And we were really confused about the timeline of Perez dying. It just didn't make any sense. It looked like she got shrapneled in the face. Hoffman and Strom go to the hospital room and there's just fresh blood everywhere. And the timeline didn't make any sense. And we're like, wow, this is a really messy scene. It doesn't make any sense. And so we learn here and this is a total shock to Hoffman that Perez actually survived that. Yeah. And Hoffman gets so indignant about this. He's like, you've been lying to me this whole time. How dare you? I really wanted to believe that this was Erickson and Perez trying to do a double cross on Hoffman. Yeah. You know, throughout the movie, and that that was why they were doing this to to just try and trap him into into a situation where, which they do eventually do. They do eventually like kind of get him into a situation where they think that they're going to be able to trap him. But early in the movie, it just really feels like they're super incompetent. Yeah, it does. But you know, Perez looks like she feels very unsafe. She like puts her head down and kind of scoots around away from Hoffman and I was like yeah girl get away from him he is creepy where I'm at in the plot here is we get a full introduction of the journalist Miss Jenkins and Miss Jenkins she has written a book about the jigsaw murders um to this point uh so she's kind of looking for a scoop she thinks that there's someone still active she's kind of the prototypical like there's something fishy going on here and I'm gonna find it out (laughs) and Hoffman just hates her of course of course and we yeah we just get a lot of plot here and I think that we said at the beginning of this episode that there's not that many traps and it's it's very plot heavy we get a flashback to Jill some interplay between Jill and the journalist they remind us that Jill had a miscarriage what Jill had a miscarriage? She received uh, a mystery box from Jigsaw's will in the last What's in the box? What's in the box, Jill? They did not pay this off for us in Saw 5. It has been 23 minutes and only one trap so far. Also, the music here I felt was very John Carpenter. Yeah, it gets like that. It started like that in Saw 5, and then I think that it stays the same. Although the person who did the music – 
does the music for all of them. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I wonder why it shifted. It just feels very background noisy, which is fine. I think that's great um, in its own right. It definitely loses that industrial feeling. I think what made me think of the music at this point was how slow this part felt because you're right. It is very plot driven mm-hmm. um, and just explanatory. And there's just this background music that is like a pulse that keeps going. And I was like, oh my God, when is this going to be over? <laughs> I want to get to some traps. They do show us in, in this kind of extended just plot exposition scene that Jill gives Hoffman five envelopes that were from the box they're just numbered one through five so that means that jill knows and they do show us this in a later flashback that jill knows that hoffman is fully involved and amanda she just she just and this was another thing i had in my we'll fix it in the sequels category is that in previous movies jill is she's getting really hardcore interrogated uh, by detectives and she's just really trying to hold him off. You know, she's kind of playing the part of the innocent wife who left her husband when he started getting weird. The whole time I've thought of Jill as somebody who got dragged into this and that's what ultimately causes their marriage to fail. It was that big of a deal to her. But now we go back and we see all of that being upended. She's actually been very aware of Amanda's involvement and the types of horrible things that he's doing. And she just she just lets it happen. She doesn't tell anybody. So she's now an accomplice in all this. And I really kind of hate that. Because I, I appreciated that Jill was just this person trying to help parts of society that don't get the services they need. And she she cares that she even says that in this, you know, they're they're addicts. It's not it's not easy to fix. And, you know, she seems to get that John is totally wrong. But this movie seems to undo all that. And I, I don't like that. It's inconsistent even within the movie because they do have that flashback scene of, of John and Jill arguing about what it means to rehab someone. We even see Amanda again and her terrible hair. And she's like, it works. Trust me. She's like a total believer. And then it looks, you know, the camera pans to Jill and she kind of looks at them like, "Uh uh-huh, okay, your cult sounds very nice. I'm going to keep doing my doctor things. And then at the end of the movie, she has just turned a full corner and is okay becoming Jigsaw herself. Between all of the movies that she's been in, the characterization hasn't been deep enough or consistent enough to Mm -hmm. make it feel logical for her to change so drastically by the end of this movie yeah i agree they had to do so much retconning via flashback in this movie to make it work but that's kind of all the boring stuff in like the opening part of the movie because then we do get into the insurance agents and their traps that's right and to make up for the horrible non sequitur of a name that i had for the first trap i think that my name for trap two is much better (laughs) <laughs> which is okay. which is does this count toward my deductible oh that's good <laughs> mine was don't hold your breath well it's good for the theme kate i'm gonna let you explain this one but at the end of it i want to talk about what would have happened if the insurance guy lost it's it's one of those traps that's 
a lot. I mean, there's lighting, there are these pumps and pulleys, and it looks very extensive as far as the setup. We see him wake up and he is strapped, like pinned in this device standing up. And there is um, another person there named Hank. And Hank is a janitor in uh, at the insurance agent uh, at the insurance agency. This trap is contingent on them not breathing in order for them to survive. Every time they take a breath, this device crushes their ribs. And Hank, the janitor, it turns out, has some kind of breathing issue that then means that it's much harder for him to hold his breath. And so Hank, the janitor, Hank eventually can't stand this anymore and he pees his pants and that really crushed me I felt so bad for him he can't hold out any longer he takes like a couple of big gulps of oxygen in and this device like crushes in his ribs and it literally pops him like it like yeah his chest pop, pops and makes a popping noise as it happens it's so gross Hank doesn't do anything. He's just the janitor. He's not. He doesn't deserve to be a victim here. And this is the the, the axe I have to grind with so many of these traps where they have one main person that they want to punish. And so they just look for anyone in their orbit to throw at them. Hank, the janitor, needs to pay his bills. That's why he works for an insurance agency. Like, do not blame the people who need to just show up to a nine to five to, like, make bills. Like, that's... That's the point of working a job. Like no one likes working any job that they're in. Yeah. So I just hate that. Hank, I I feel really badly for him. And you can see that the insurance guy feels the same way. He's very conflicted. You know, he doesn't want Hank to die. He knows Hank, um, but he also doesn't want to die himself. And yeah. So this brings us back to my original question. What would have happened at this point in the movie if this guy had lost? Did Jigsaw set this up knowing that this guy was not going to lose? I think so. I think that there is a throwaway line about Hank is not able to hold his breath for a long period of time. So I think Jigsaw knows that the odds of Hank dying are really high at this point. I guess it's sort of Jigsaw putting upon this insurance agent to tell him, hey, look, these people are good people and yet they're dying for something that is within your control to help with and yet you're not helping. And we see that in the next trap scene too. What'd you call this one? I called it Who's Your Work BFF. My trap three is the trap with the mother and the son. They 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 show it. Oh, okay. And they show the mother and the son looking at it and trying to figure it out, but we don't actually know what it does to later in the movie. But since it comes up here, this is my trap three. Okay. Yeah. I, I didn't name that one until the end when I, when we know as an audience, what it is that they're doing. Okay. We cut to, um, a woman and her teenage son. They're in a prison cell and they have this like crummy little TV where they're able to watch Easton make his way through all of these traps and you're led to believe that this is his wife and son because he's told at the beginning of his trap quest that 
he may never see his family again unless he gets through all these traps in an hour. Of course, there's always a time limit. Um, and so then they, they jump to these guys. It's a mother and son. We assume it's his family. Um, there's a switch on the wall that says live or die. And they don't know what it does. They're kind of looking around. They see some sprinklers. They see some hydrofluoric acid. They're kind of putting two and two together. And we too, we do sort of follow this throughout the film, but we don't need to come back to this trap until the end of the movie when it actually comes into use. Yeah, I, I didn't love the mom and son scenes. Um, basically, we cut to them every 15 minutes or so, and they're still arguing about whether or not to flip the switch. <laughs> uh, we do then see um, a scene with Miss Jenkins going to Jill's apartment. Uh, Ms. Jenkins, the journalist author. Um, and my only comment about this scene, uh, you know, Jenkins does get uh, kidnapped at the end of this scene by Hoffman. Um, but when Jenkins knocks on Jill's door and Jill answers and like the camera cuts between the two of them, I was like, what is the vibe that they're going for here? It, it like really felt like it was the start to a porno because like Jenkins is in those like obviously fake glasses and like like she's there to fix the tv for jill or something well she went to her apartment to confront her and there's just this <laughs> awkward tension between them and i was yeah. like are these two blonde hotties gonna make out like like what are we doing here so we've been following um our insurance guy now through the maze for a little bit um he has a tattoo on his hand and it says the party and this is supposed to trigger his memory about jigsaw it's supposed to help be a clue right but he does seem to remember right away where he where he knows his captor from he has a conversation with john at a party about insurance (laughs) yep (laughs) of course and it's a long scene where john explains it's basically a primer for the audience on all the reasons why insurance is bad yeah it's terrible and how every other country with universal healthcare does it better and these are all things bernie sanders has been saying for like years now and is this supposed to be our representative now john jigsaw do you think jigsaw is a bernie bro i couldn't i couldn't tell if he was a bernie bro or a very staunch conservative because he also says well those are the rules which is a very conservative stance Okay, so if you're looking at it from, like, a political compass standpoint, like, Jigsaw has an extremely strong moral compass and is, like, such an avid rule creator and follower and expects that of everyone. So it's, like, a really authoritarian type bent. But he also wants, like, universal health care. He, like, specifically says that he doesn't like insurance agents being the middlemen. He uses the phrase middlemen, which is so, like, I mean, middlemen is just like an invention of like capitalism and bureaucracy, right? So I don't know. He's somewhere up in the authoritarian quadrants, though. He's authoritarian, but it needs to be fair in his own mind. It doesn't matter if it's fair in our mind or not. It needs to be fair in Jigsaw's mind. So we get to trap four right after this. Yep. I called it hanging out. And you called it what again? I called it who's your work BFF. This one has two people. So I will say that Easton seems to know what's going on 
And so he knows that he's in a jigsaw series of traps. He has already seen one person die. He knows that he only has so much time to try and escape and get his family. So he sees written on this control panel the words, take them. And he looks at it and he's like, nope. And he keeps he run, like keeps running past it. Oh, um, a, a doll like swings and hits the window to like grab his attention to be like, no, no, you have to stop and do this. You can't just skip a trap. And it's a Billy doll. Yeah, it's a Billy doll, which means that Jigsaw and Hoffman were both thinking about like, oh, what happens if someone tries to skip this? Like yeah. what happens? Because if he skipped it, he would have just been able to grab the next key and keep going. Because right. there's nothing locked or anything. It was just open for him to keep going to the next one. Yeah, good bug testing by Hoffman and Jigsaw, making sure that all this stuff gets covered and not forgotten. I guess Hoffman's a better QA engineer than Amanda was. Yeah, probably. So this one, we have Easton's secretary. She's an old lady, which we're calling a pre-existing condition. His young cool guy assistant who he just like loves to bro out with like that's like basically what they tell us and they're both hanging by their necks with like a really like sharp and horrible chain and yeah it looks like barbed wire almost yeah it looks really painful and the gist of this one is that jigsaw says that he needs to pick one of them to save and if he doesn't pick one of them to save by you know grabbing onto essentially like the chains that are like holding like holding them open he he himself will be like ripped apart because there's no way for him to to hold onto both of them to save them and she has a family and this broy assistant guy has no family but he's more healthy so who what what matters more to this insurance guy a woman with a family and people who will feel if she's gone or this guy who's alone in the world, who cares? I, I mean, I value every human life. I, I, I kind of hate this setup that just because this guy doesn't have a family, this guy looks like he's twenty five, and holding it against him that he's not married with kids at twenty five just feels really mean. It's ageism. It really is. But I, I think that's what Jigsaw is posing, right? I don't think Jigsaw has this valuation system i think he's trying to show how stupid it is to judge things based on these sort of quantifiable data points i still hate that someone has to die there's it feels very hoffman because there's no way to get out of this trap without at least one person dying. yeah i i do hate that about these traps too the yeah these are definitely very hoffman traps but we do know that jigsaw is very involved this is actually the first time we've seen a trap um with jigsaw on the actual tape yeah yeah back when they showed the tape to the wife and son um you see jigsaw you don't see billy so we know Jigsaw was involved in this. Yeah, I, I thought that that was an interesting change in direction. And I wasn't sure if it was because they wanted to really impress upon the audience that Jigsaw is actually the one who's behind this and that this was truly his trap and not just Hoffman. I'm not either. I, I kind of chalked it up to, oh, Jigsaw is sick and old and running out of time. So he's making these videos very fast at the end. I mean, he would have had to be making a lot because... 
in this movie, there's something like 11 victims just of the insurance agents, not mm-hmm. even including like the other people who end up in <laughs> cages watching this thing go down. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a lot. It's a lot of tapes. It's a lot of tapes for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. So our insurance dude eventually picks the old lady with a family because I, I guess his his ability to relate to her wins out. You know, the young guy is obviously going to have less problems for a longer period of time so they can make more money off of him. But he is a human being and he understands that her family is going to miss her. So he chooses her. Who would you pick, Kate? I'd pick the lady. I was, ugh, yeah, I was thinking I would pick the kid just because he has potential. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's hard. I don't think that there's a right answer. Like, I genuinely no. don't think that there is. I think that people... Would, Which makes me glad that we picked different answers. <laughs> I think that we would, like, people who maybe believe in this type of justice might say that if this mom dies, um, she has more immediate family who will grieve and that she has, like, a young child who whose entire life will be impacted from her mother dying in a really gruesome serial killing event and I think that like that makes me feel like okay the the ripple effect of like this woman's death seems like it would be larger than this young man's death but if that's total speculation like we don't actually know like right. what this who knows like this kid could be like I don't know a person who is about to revol- revolutionize the insurance industry and was going to actually dismantle the system from the inside and we should have saved him. <laughs> so who knows? Yeah. And and I think that's the route that my mind went on. Like, well, there's potential here. She's clearly done, you know, making an impact so much. Which, uh, is, big your, which is your bias, which is so funny, right? That, that you're like, oh, she's become a mom, which means that she's fulfilled her life's purpose, which means that she serves no further purpose. It's so bad. <laughs> but yeah, I, I had a hard time with this one. I was like, there's no way to pick the right answer. They're both fine. They both should live. I'm trying to vilify one against the other. And that's a to- that's the wrong way to approach this. You know, when you debate about like, oh, would you cut off fat from your belly or would you cut your arm off? Like, those are things where like, I don't know, I feel like you can get into like a good debate about it, but then you have these like moral conundrums on what type of person should be allowed to live. Like if you're in this insane hypothetical of someone has to die situation that doesn't actually happen in real life. So it is interesting to think about. At this point, we are getting to see some flashbacks with Hoffman helping Jigsaw set up some traps. And there was a scene that I thought was really funny that I want to call out. Maybe you did too. It's it's when Hoffman and Jigsaw are setting up Saw 3 slash 4. Um, and they have Timothy's body in a wheelbarrow. Do you remember this? I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Hoffman takes this wheelbarrow, dumps it out next to the trap, and Timothy's body just sort of tumbles out. He's unconscious into this pile, and Jigsaw gets very offended. He said, "That's a human being. Respect human life." Why do they do this? Right before he's about to be, atta- you know, hooked up to this awful trap where he's twisted into a pretzel, 
Treat him like a human being. Come on, Hoffman. They really want to make us believe that Jigsaw values human life so much, and that's the only reason why he's putting people through these horrible things. And uh, it's so inconsistent. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you read any kind of serial killer interview or, you know, watch Mindhunter or something, like, you'll see that they don't really have a solid internal consistency. (laughs) So I guess that there's that. But, like, it just drives me batty that (laughs) Jigsaw gets so, like, up in arms about the way they treat their victims, like, when they're about to massacre them. And then we see him talking to insurance guy about this cool experimental treatment that he might be able to try out and it's cheaper because it's experimental and he is hoping he can get coverage for this. And and there's a little bit of jigsaw sass here where he calls out Dr. Gordon, basically like not being as smart as he thinks he is. Right. Yeah. Um, and of course he gets turned down. He's not allowed to to go do this. If if Jigsaw tries to get this type of experimental treatment, they will drop his health insurance. And this is not an American experimental treatment. It is very specifically a Norwegian experimental treatment, which I don't know, like I don't think I've seen very many like re- revolutionary like medical things coming out of the Norwegian healthcare industry, but they're telling him they're like you have an inoperable brain tumor and anything that's like that experimental like it might only d- delay things. It's definitely not going to save you at this point. And Jigsaw just doesn't want to hear it. He's like, "No, I have 20 more people minimum to kill. I need all the time I can get. He basically has the argument with this insurance guy that we all had with our parents about four years ago. <laughs> Pretty much. And it's really funny to watch. It's like, oh yeah, Jigsaw, been there. Just just don't worry about it. It's not gonna, it's not gonna work. <sighs> so frustrating. Trap five. Oh, uh, this one's this one's gnarly. I called this one Hot Pockets. Oh, that's the best. I called it the bowels of hell. So we have here um, the lawyer from the insurance agency is in this boiler room and it has these horrible, like insanely hot steam vents that open up and just spit out this flesh melting steam. He can help her. He he has to pull like this lever and this lever directs the steam away from her and onto him and is just totally burning the side of his face and his arm. And it's really horrible. And she has 90 seconds to finish this maze. And and so there's all of this theme of like, is Easton willing to hurt himself in order to help someone else? And if not, is he willing to actually let those people just die? And is he, is he going to accept that this person is going to die? He does it like the entire time to try and help her get out. Yeah, he's overall a nice guy. Again, like I think that's something the movie did on purpose. He does help. He when- helps her. Yeah, he he really actively helps her. And she repays him by trying to kill him. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty dark. So she gets to the end of this maze. He does help her. The whole way through and she's able to get out but there's no key there's supposed to be a key to get this other secondary trap that's on her body um basically she's got a a sawed off pipe attached to the front 
of her torso and after 90 seconds it will eject into her jaw horrible through her brain horrible <laughs> apparently and the the key to it as she she finds out towards the at the end of the maze where he's telling her look where's the key there's got to be a key Oh, turns out it's in your body. And what does she have in front of her to retrieve that key? A power saw. Of course. He lets her out of the cage and she goes after him with the power saw. Of course, he is not happy about this. And they tussle and he basically, he knocks her down um, onto the like floor of this, of the boiler room. And she just gets, yeah, she just dies. She's done. Yeah. She does get, eventually she does get that pipe going through her brain. Um, But it's sort of funny when we see her laying on the ground, her head is just, you know, she's flopped there like a dead body and her head is twisted away from the pipe. And it looks to me like she could have very easily avoided that, the ending of that trap. Right. If she had like moved her head, if she'd moved her head a little further. Yeah. Right. I think Jigsaw could have done a better job with this, making her head so that it couldn't turn. And then it would have been a a little more. He's done that in so many other traps. Yeah. Yeah. I think that sometimes they, they want to try and mix up the traps a little bit. So it's not like the same like head device over and over. But yeah. really, the head device is the most effective tool in Jigsaw's toolbox. Yeah. I hate this trap so much. I think this is the one of the hardest. I'm trying to think. Let me think for like one second. Yeah. I think this is the worst trap of the movie. I do not like steam burns. I think I mentioned before that I don't like drowning. I don't like fire traps. This is sort of in the middle. <laughs> Because there's water and fire involved. <laughs> Steam burns are no joke. We, I mean, we watch this in the movie when when either of them gets hit by steam, you watch their skin just almost melting away to reveal their tissue underneath. It looks like it would be extremely painful. If I had to go through one of the traps in this movie, I think I'd want to go through that horrible carousel one that's the next trap. Yeah, at least if you get it, it's quick. But um, I, you know, I it rem- it reminded me of when you'd come over and and we were doing Blue Apron together, and I was washing the dishes, and you touched the water that I was washing the dishes in, and you said, "Ooh!" Like you you jumped because it was so hot, and you were like, "Oh man, I must have hands of steel <laughs> because of the water temperature." And then I think, oh, this was like a hundred times worse than that. Yeah. I- yeah, I also think about that shower scene in later Orange is the New Black. Yeah, there's a scene that's based on a real story about a prison guard hooking a guy up to the shower because you're handcuffed when you're, I guess, taking showers. Um, and he turned the hot water all the way up and basically burned this guy to death. Oh, that's so horrible. I get sick thinking about it. Sometimes I'm taking showers and I think about it. It makes me sick. And that's what this reminded me of. So I really, really hate this trap. It seems so painful and awful. Yeah, it's not ple- It's not like fun to watch either. Like some of, some of these things are kind of like ghoulishly fun to watch. Some of them you watch and you're like, this is just 
pain and misery for everyone involved. But we get to trap six really fast after this. There's only two traps left. I know. We have um, a, a really quick scene, uh, a couple of quick scenes in between the two traps. So one of them is we see Jenkins, the journalist author. She'd been kidnapped by Hoffman. She wakes up in a cage that's basically the same type of cage that the mother and son are trapped in. And I love this bit because she starts listening to the jigsaw tape and she gets like less than halfway into it. And she goes, oh, fuck you. And she just throws yeah. it. <laughs> I wrote that down too. I feel like I'd want to listen to it, but I guess. I know. I love that she just knows it's bullshit because he's like, he starts doing his jigsaw thing. Like, what are you doing with your life? And she's just like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> yeah. You don't know. You don't care. Uh, we, we also see. Perez, Strom, and Hoffman um, at the FBI, and they are telling him, they're telling Hoffman, and I called out this scene for one specific reason, and it's that I love the idea that Hoffman seems to have no idea what technology is available at the time because he is genuinely surprised that they can descramble tapes. Yes. And yes. so he has this oh shit moment because he realizes that his voice is what they're about to descramble. And and this is where we get into my research quest to find out if this was something real. Are we ready to go there? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So there is a line that is used while Hoffman is listening to Erickson and Perez talk about how they've been coming to the conclusions they're about to come to. And they have checked the fingerprints that have been made at some of these crime scenes. So we do get this really great flashback series of Hoffman grabbing Strom's stiff hand from the top of the trash compactor grate. And he just sort of walks around with it to all these different traps and he sticks his fingerprints on Mm -hmm. everything. And it's really funny because he also sometimes dips the fingers in blood before putting a print. This montage of Hoffman taking this obvious prop hand yeah. <laughs> and just like <laughs> smushing it over walls and bars and <laughs> dipping it into blood. I was like, in all the right so places. Funny. I know. It's hilarious. It's like unintentionally really funny. I thought that that was a really funny scene. Yeah. So after we get that, we hear this line from Perez and Erickson the uric acid levels in the fingerprints, in the fingerprints were inconsistent for an individual with an active epidural metabolism. Kate spent like two hours at least trying to figure, you know, we don't have, we're, Kate and I do the show by ourselves. We don't have a crew to help us. We do all the editing. We do all the writing. We do everything. So, you know, a couple of hours is a lot. And <laughs> what is an epidural metabolism? I don't know. I, I am not a forensic scientist. I am not a biologist. I don't study chemistry. Any of you out there who are listening, who know the answer to this, is this sentence logical? Does it make sense? Please tell us. I I spent a lot of time looking this up. So a few things I looked up were, what is epidural metabolism? Mm -hmm. I I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find anything that gave me an answer that made sense. Um, So I moved on from that. I, I wanted to find out if fingerprints could be left from a dead body at all period 
Mm-hmm. Um, that, w- that would work. And what I was finding was that, yes, you can get the fingerprints from a dead body. But really what you're up against is, you know, maybe a day of 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 the finger still leaving the same kind of mark. And I think this has to do with your finger changes after you after you die. Just it 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 changes um, consistency. You know, you're not producing the same oils. You're the, the ridges start behaving differently. So so that made sense. Um, however, in this movie, they do recognize the fingerprints as being Strom's. Mm-hmm. So that couldn't be it. Um, and, and they they mention testing uric acid. So I looked up if you could test uric acid in fingerprints. I couldn't find anything for fingerprints. If we have any forensic analysis who listen to this show and would love to write into us <laughs> and tell us God. if any of this makes any sense or if this is just medical jargon, because it really just felt like, you know, when you're watching CSI or NCIS, I felt like it was really popular to just kind of throw out a lot of like mumbo jumbo things. Yeah. And all this like kind of medical jargon. That's like really what it felt like in this scene where they're just throwing out a reason where they're like, this doesn't make any sense. This is a red flag for us. Yeah. So, right. Because they see Strom's fingerprints, but somehow they know that he's dead when the fingerprints are left. So they talk about uric acid in the fingerprints. And I looked up uric acid, you know, being tested in fingerprints. That doesn't seem to be a thing. However, uh, there were some studies that I dug up. I should post all these links on our blog. You um, yeah. And there, there is a slight difference in uric acid in your system after you die. So that at least seemed to carry some sort of realism to it. It's, it's possible maybe to test and find that out, but it didn't seem like there was very strong evidence on this, that that is very definitive in determining whether a fingerprint is left post-mortem or not. And I, I was trying to imagine how much sweat is left in a fingerprint. I'm not a scientist. It doesn't seem plausible. The studies I read, people were doing physical activity and their sweat was being collected. So I don't know about this one, guys. I don't know about this one at all. Doesn't seem realistic. And I'm shocked. (laughs) Uh, Well, I've been on a jury once for a mail fraud case. So I'm an expert on all things related to courts and the law. And And so my totally 100% accurate conjecture here is that maybe they're trying to just introduce a, a, you know, a reasonable doubt that the fingerprints are usable so that they could try and get them dismissed as evidence so that if they did try to charge Hoffman, then Hoffman's defense attorney would say like, well, but there's all of these fingerprints from Strom. So how are you going to account for that? Not, it's more like, they're posturing hey we know that this wasn't strong when really maybe they just had evidence to support that it may not have been strong 
Yeah, I think it's more about trying to discount evidence against Strom than it is to maybe build evidence against Hoffman. But this is being extremely generous and like writing in some backstory <laughs> in in for Erickson and Perez that is definitely not. You in the story. know how much I love closing loopholes, so I am going to go ahead and close this loophole Ooh, and say that we know why they said this. <laughs> Just to get to Hoffman. <laughs> they will probably try and fix us in a flashback in Saw 7 anyway. So we'll we'll see then. But yeah, if you guys out there know about this type of testing at all and you want to tell us the truth, that'd be really cool too. <laughs> so back to trap six, right? Yeah. I called this one women and children first. Oh, that's, that's a good one. I called it Nightmare Carousel. <laughs> Oh my gosh, one of my favorite things about this movie, which is like not even a major plot point, but it's just not a thing that we've talked about or that they don't even really talk about that much in this movie, is that all of these traps take place inside of an abandoned zoo. Okay, thank you. I noticed this earlier and I forgot to call it out. I said, this looks like they're going through an abandoned Smithsonian or something. Yes. it really looks like a museum or or a like or a, yeah it's it's a zoo it's an abandoned zoo <laughs> of course it is of course it is and of course zoos will sometimes have like little children's rides and so jigsaw and hoffman have overtaken this it's not a carousel it's it looks a little bit like i guess it is a little bit like a carousel it's motorized though isn't it it is yeah, they've done they've done their mechanical engineering tricks to it. And Easton has to he has in front of him six of his coworkers. Like six whole coworkers. Like you should just stop and think about like six of your own coworkers and just random ones and then be like, "Okay, four of you have to die." That's what Ethan has to do in this one. So fun fact, fun fact about this one really quick before you go into how it works. This trap originally had 10 victims that they wanted to include, but they decided to go down to six to tie in better with the title of the movie. Oh, that, that is a fun fact. Yeah. And it's also the longest saw trap that we've seen so far. The scene does feel very long. Mm-hmm. it's oh man this scene wears me out it makes me tired there's so much screaming uh the gist of this trap is pretty basic i guess for a saw trap uh as this carousel is spinning it will periodically stop and will shoot each of the victims unless easton is willing to have his palms drilled into to save them the catch is, is that he can only save two of them. And if he makes no decisions, then all of them will die. And that's it. And so this scene is super long. It is a lot of negotiating and screaming and crying and Easton not being able to make a decision for the first couple of rounds. And so we just kind of lose people kind of quickly at the beginning um, until it gets to a point where he he really does start to decide who he's going to save. We do get to see Darius McCrary in this scene. I don't know if any of you remember him from Family Matters. He played Eddie, but he's back in action on the Carousel of Doom or whatever it is we're calling this. I don't know who that is. 
Oh man, did you, you never saw Family Man? This tells you um, about our age difference. Is um, that the Man's one movie. with Urkel? Yes. Yes. Okay. I think I've seen a couple episodes, but it was um, I was like little when Family Matters yeah. came out, and so it was like over my head. I don't know if I ever noticed before, but just this time I caught it and I was like, oh, cool. It's Eddie. He's doing <laughs> stuff still. And actually at the same time, he was just starting um, a new role on Young and the Restless, which I thought was pretty great. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, this this trap is so complex looking. Um, I don't totally understand the mechanics of it. Like, how does it know when this guy has chosen somebody? How does it keep track of the two the two people that he saves. Right. It's really complicated. I really wanted him or the victims to try and be able to outsmart this trap and figure out a way to make it stop in a position that either didn't point at at anyone or maybe only killed one person by just having it fire six times in the same spot. Yeah. Or again, similar to the last trap, it really feels like this trap is dependent on accuracy. You know, the gun has to point right at their head. Could they have moved out of the way? Maybe that's really not what this series is about. It's very convoluted. And like we said, like this one's really long. And it's if I had to be in a saw trap, I would want to be in this one because there's no torture. You just get shot and you die. Yeah. Like, I mean, okay, sorry. There is emotional torture because there is the the negotiating because the victims know that he can potentially save two of them. And so they get creative. One girl says that she's pregnant. Who knows if she actually is or not? Um, probably not because, yeah, they all kind of like throw her under the bus. They're like, she's not pregnant. <laughs> And so that there is like there is torture in that regard, but there's not like skin flaying and like skin melting torture happening. Yeah. Like you get shot and you die, and that's it. It's really funny to see these guys. These are all the junior associates. They're all screaming about how everyone else is a liar or bad or they'll turn on you, blah, blah, blah. You know, they're all screaming for mercy. They're all turning on each other. But then you know, when it comes down to it and they have to sit there and watch somebody get shot in the head, they're like, you can tell they're they're not ready for that either. No. <laughs> they're not ready to die. Nope. But they're really not interested in killing each other. They're just basically doing what they have to do to try to survive. And by the end of this scene, there is the one the one guy left who is still trying his hardest to save his own life. He's screaming. He's he's making his case. And insurance guy has saved two women. He he ended up not saving this guy. And that guy just, just falls apart. He's like, well, you know what? After all is said and done, fuck you. And I hate you. And I don't want to work here. And your insurance <laughs> policy sucks. He just lets him have it. And the music here is so good. I love the way the music shifts. And it just becomes this... Rather than this buildup towards a climax, it's this doom. It's okay, we're over now. This is this trap is done. Everyone else on this carousel is dead, and there's nothing you can do about it. And that's what happens. I yeah, the ending is is good. There's yeah, this guy is lobbying so hard to live, and then he just turns on a dime as soon as he realizes that he's yeah. not getting out of this trap. It's hard to make decisions under pressure like that. And he has to make a decision six times 
basically yeah. on what to do. That was a good one. I lo- I really do love how they do that trap. After this, we get we're back to the, trap three. <laughs> the Hoffman mania. <laughs> do we really go through trap three before Hoffman's stuff? I guess they sort of happen simultaneously, don't they? Yeah, because there's a bunch of flashbacks in here too. Yeah. That's- okay. So, so go for, I'll let I'll let you take the lead, Kate. All right. There's a really hot lady who's working on unscrambling the tape. <laughs> I was like, where have you been this whole series? <laughs> and they've got Perez and Erickson are in there. And they're both doing this really leading type of questioning with Hoffman because they know it's Hoffman. They, they pretty much got his number. And you really think that they're going to just take Hoffman down in this scene. And Instead, what happens is they reveal that they all know that it's Hoffman. The tape is unscrambled. And Hoffman, he knifes Erickson in the neck and kills him. He knifes Perez and kills her. Perez, in the fray, shoots the hot lady who is unscrambling the tape. So all of them (laughs) die and Hoffman escapes. Yeah, it feels very Stephen King. Stephen King does this in a few of his films slash books where you think, oh, the hero's about to get saved by somebody. Um, And then that somebody walks into the scene and they get killed. They get killed right before they can save anybody. And this does happen in Misery with the the sheriff. It happens in Pet Cemetery with the the neighbor who knows what's going on with the cemetery. Um, And that's what this reminded me of. It just, it takes them all down so quickly and any hope you have of never having to watch Hoffman again just like dissipates so quickly. (laughs) We are stuck with him. We're stuck with him for another movie. And there's even another fake out where you're like, oh, Hoffman really is done. And then they take that away from us again. We see in here, you know, some more with Jill talking to Jenkins and then we get um, we get kind of before the last two traps because the last two traps are kind of back to back because we're we're in the end game here. It's the end of the movie, and in true saw fashion, they always like to really tightly edit and interweave the last scenes so that you get this like really intense climax. And then there's no denouement. It's just like climax and then credits. And yep. so you got Hoffman killing. Perez and Erickson and the other FBI agent lady, you see Jill, they have a really quick flashback where they actually retcon Amanda into Jill's miscarriage backstory. So we learn that Hoffman actually blackmailed Amanda into killing Lynn Denlin because- Yeah, thanks. Why? Because he didn't like her? I don't know. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that wasn't clear to me either. So I was like- Maybe Kate will answer this. All right. So we don't know why he hates Lynn, but go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't make it – they don't really expand on that. But I, it really no. felt to me like this is another entry into the we'll fix it in the sequel. Yeah. That when Amanda kills Lynn Denlin in Saw 3, it's kind of a bizarre shooting. She she It's just kind of a weirdly acted and paced scene because she just kind of casually shoots her, even though Jigsaw has told her really explicitly not to. And so it kind of felt like they saw that and they were like, let's make it, let's make it purposeful why she was so cavalier about killing 
her. It's because she got blackmailed into killing Lynn. We still aren't really clear on why. No, we're not. But at least it explains Amanda a little bit better. A little bit. It get, it just gives us a little bit more Amanda. And then we're back in present day. Hoffman has, you know, he's left the FBI agent. He's jammed right on over to the the warehouse, where uh, the abandoned zoo where all of this is taking place. It looks like a warehouse, but it's an abandoned zoo. And um, he goes to sit down on the chair to like oversee what's going on. And he gets a little jolty jolt. (laughs) Jill kidnaps Hoffman. And when you look at the two of them, that makes no sense to say out loud. But Jill has a booby trap chair set up I guess she knows that Hoffman's going to need to take a sit and think things through. I guess so. And I guess that my best guess is that Jill knew everything about Jigsaw's warehouse. And so she might have just kind of rummaged around until she found the thing that she needed to incapacitate him. Because I do not believe that every person in the Saw universe is capable of the degree of engineering feats that is happening at this pace in this movie yeah no doesn't make any sense so we then kind of cut back to trap three mm-hmm. and we get the the payoff here i'll stop the trap and melt for you perfect cannot be improved upon <laughs> <laughs> Easton has finally made it. He has survived and he is at the end of his traps and he walks into this room area. He's looking around because he has been told that his family is going to be waiting for him at the end here. And they drop one side of the wall where we know the mother and son are. And then they drop the other side of the wall where we know Jenkins is. And here's our fun little twist is that the mother and son are not Easton's family. Jenkins is a sister. And and they do this really funny, uh, I don't know, scene call out that has never happened before. It's a made up flashback. And she, and he's, it's back when he's calling her and saying, you know, I'm sorry, I'm going to miss your birthday. And she says, well, I'm, how can you miss your sister's birthday? I'm your only family. <laughs> I thought that was good because we haven't really seen a lot of sister family members. It's always been somebody's wife and kid or somebody's and kid. Yeah. So it's a little different, but it is family. You're totally right that we haven't seen like a sibling duo like this before. Yeah. We, we've seen Hoffman care about his sister, but. Um, Very loosely. Yeah. Hoffman's a bad guy and we don't care. <laughs> We don't care about him and his sister's relationship, but this guy is sort of a victim, even though he's an insurance guy and he loves his sister, which is, which is totally fair. So he's stuck between his sister and this mother and son who we find out are the mother and son of the last man he is sentenced to death for having a cyst in his jaw. Yep. And they have control. They have a switch in their cell that we've talked, we referenced earlier. But this actually controls something going on where he is located. And now that they see him, they realize this. The mom really considers it. 
But the whole movie, so we didn't really like talk about this because it was basically the same argument the whole movie. The mom keeps saying to the son, her son's a hothead, and she tells him, we don't know what this is going to do. Like we don't know, and which is totally fair. Like it's a jigsaw trap, Hoffman's involved. And so they could pull this trigger and yeah, it might kill Easton, but it could also kill them because it's a very jigsaw thing to do. And the kid, he's just not having it. No, he questions all this stuff like we've been wanting people to do this whole time. He questions it. He's pushing on it. And then at the end of the movie here, the mom, she's like, you know, I could do this. And she goes, but I'm not going to. You know, she's trying to take the high road. And her son's like, I can. (laughs) I can. And I would have made a good cultist. And he pulls the switch. And what happens is just so great. It's so creamy. It's wild. It's totally wild. I, I think it's one of the more convoluted traps created. Yeah. So from the ceiling swings down this panel that has injector points, injection points into it um, that pierce insurance guy's back. And turns out that hydrofluoric acid is able to be pumped into those injection points. And so when that kid flips that switch, it means that he has sentenced Easton to die death by acid. But to be fair, and I, I think this is fair, at least the kid has to watch what he's done. They're separated by these mesh fences so you can see everything yeah they can see everything and it's a long shot so this is like again it's the end of the movie so the editing here is kind of quick in between various scenes so in between this guy's body literally melting from acid which is i guarantee you that that's the reason why spain gave this movie an x rating is because yeah it's so (laughs) It's so internal. It's like every single part of the inside of this guy's body is now on the outside of this guy's body. And I and I was wondering, you know, they always they play with the time a lot in this series. You you hear them get a minute to do something, but it always feels so much longer. And I was wondering how long you would really survive being melted from the inside out like that. He is screaming the whole time. It seems extremely painful. Uh, it seems so awful. We also see Hoffman uh, waking up in a head head device. And I think it's the Amanda device. Yeah. They, they bring back the bear trap. Yep. Bear, bear, reverse bear trap. Uh, so he wakes up in that. And this is where they reveal to us that uh, even though Jill gave Hoffman five envelopes from Jigsaw's will, and those five envelopes were essentially telling Hoffman the remaining people that he needed to pull into the jigsaw traps that Jill had kept a secret little sixth envelope for herself. And inside of that was a photo of Hoffman, the final jigsaw victim. So Jill has known all along that she was going to need Hoffman to execute this large (laughs) jigsaw trap in a zoo. And then she was going to be taking over the jigsaw mantle for like one last outing to get rid of this loose thread, which is Hoffman. Hoffman. We all think, oh, finally Hoffman's going to get it. 
she puts the trap on his head and straps him to the chair so he can't move. He has no way out. We just are supposed to be under the assumption that he's going to get Hoffman. Hoffman mm-hmm. is going to get Hoffman by Jill. And and of course he doesn't. It'd be too perfect if he did. He's unfortunately too smart. He he, he is too much of a badass for this. Too aware of how these traps work. Yeah. Up up to this point he's been smashing the fuck out of his hand so that he can break it and slide it out from under the straps similar to um Eric Matthews in Saw 2 or 3. Now I can't even remember anymore, but he you know he's okay, he smashes his his ankle to bits so that he can slide it out of the shackle and that's what Hoffman does here so that he can shove the bear trap in between some bars so that it doesn't split his head in half. And then it finishes with Hoffman just screaming as, you know, his his mouth, you know, he gets the trap off of his head and but in the course of that, it's totally ripped up the side of his cheek. And so he screams and it's just his like mangled face is screaming, but he's alive. And man, he deserves to survive. He did everything he was supposed to do. And then some. But he is in it for the next movie. Yep. We get another movie with Costas. And did you stay till the end of this movie? Like after the credits? Yeah. No, I didn't. What's after the credits? I I haven't been staying till after the credits either. I was just writing some notes and I let it play out. Um, and there is a post-credit. Oh, no. Does that mean I have to go back and watch all of the credits from yes, all of the other movies? We should. We should go we back. Should. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but in this one, it's Amanda, and she's talking to Jeff's daughter through a hole in, like, a peephole in whatever room that Jeff's daughter is being held in. And she, Amanda's telling her, don't trust the one that saved you. And of course, we get a flashback slash maybe flash forward, who knows, of this little girl being carried out by Hoffman. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, this seemed weird because that had happened two movies ago, three movies ago, two movies ago, where he saves her. But they did a throwback to it at the end of this film. Yeah, interesting. I, okay, so we'll have to watch the other ones, but I, don't remember the next couple of Saw movies well enough to know if that yeah really has an impact on the major plot but I get I guess we'll see yeah I wish it was like a Kill Bill ending where the little girl comes back you know how they do what is her name with Vivica Fox and Uma Thurman you know kills her and tells the daughter look you can come after me down the road when you get older if you feel like that's fair but your mother wronged me and I was wondering oh man is this gonna be like like ammo for down the road when this little girl goes after people I would love like a Saw Generation movie yeah they're like okay so let's see this movie came out in 2009 I think that little girl was like 12 or so so 11 years later she'd be 23 now oh yeah yeah so I would say that like if in five years or so they they did like a Saw Generation movie where it was this little girl had like, I don't know, she because she was trapped there. She talked to Amanda. She knew Hoffman was a bad guy. Yeah. 
I it's it's funny to go back and rewatch these and not remember everything. What'd you think of this one? It was okay. Um, I I think for these later ones, I enjoy talking about them more than I enjoy watching them. I I like thinking about them in terms of the overall story uh, and knowing, you know, what the trajectory of this is. I think it's really interesting for a franchise to decide kind of less than halfway into it that they're going to kill their main villain and then looking to see like how they can fulfill that villain role. And so for so many movies now we've had Hoffman here, we get this, this kind of tease that Hoffman might be on the outs and Jill is stepping up. And so going into Saw 7, we know that Jill and Hoffman are going to be at odds and there's going to have to be some resolution to that, which means that Saw 7 is going to be a really Jill heavy movie. I I think it's okay. I think that some of the traps are intriguing and a little different from what we've seen before. But I think on the whole, like Saw 6, I'm not a huge, not a huge fan of. What about you? Yeah, this is another movie that I wasn't looking forward to going in, but that was good because it kept my expectations real low before rewatching it. And I actually was more pleased with the cinematography, more happy with the character juxtapositioning that was going on. Um, I thought it was really interesting to have an insurance agent have a heart of gold. <laughs> he was he was a nice guy and he, he kind of gets screwed this whole time. He's, I, I mean, you know, we're all working jobs where we're a cog in a wheel. Not all of us, but a lot of us. And you do what you have to do. And that's kind of what this guy was doing. And they, they do sort of explore that, I think, in his character setup. This, this movie isn't as trap heavy, but it does have some really, really, I think some beautiful cinematography in some of these traps. I think the, I do. I think the, um, the steam trap is done shot really well. And, um, is really gross and creepy and I do appreciate that trap. I appreciate the music in this movie, the way they integrated it with with some of the the climaxes of the traps, especially the carousel. So it does have some nice things going on as far as it fitting into this franchise. It it to me it feels like the furthest away from the vibe so far. I agree. I agree. I think that it's it's not quite a standalone movie like you wouldn't be able to just watch this and get everything that's going on I think that there's too much plot that they're trying to resolve from previous movies in here to really just kind of jump in and watch it but I think in terms of the arc of the series we we really come out of this only really gaining that Jill has turned to the dark side Hoffman is still alive. He's still a bad guy. Uh, everyone who might have been on to him in the police force and in the in, in the FBI uh, are dead. And he's now at odds, directly at odds with Jill. And so that's the, the state of the world that we're going into Saw 7 with. And I think kind of everything else that happens doesn't do a lot for the universe. Yeah. It's not one of my favorites, but it also is not one of my least favorites. 
Yeah, we're going to get to those pretty soon. Maybe with Saw 7? Maybe with Saw 7. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I guess that's a wrap. See you guys when we're talking about Saw 7. Possibly the least favorite Saw movie of them all. Yep, only time will tell. This has been Not Quite Dead. Make sure to check out our other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, you know, if you're feeling a little wild and crazy, why don't you try listening to them out of order? It's not like the Saw movies make sense anyway. Or, you know, listen to them in order, as they were intended. Either way, thanks for listening to our show. Don't get sawed.